The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore, Part 4, The 1900s, From Logical Positivism to Postmodernism. The philosophy that came to dominate research in psychology during the first half of the 20th century was called logical positivism. This philosophy began with meetings of scientists, mathematicians, physicists, and scientists turned philosophers in Vienna and Berlin. This occurred in the 1920s. The names that come up most often in association with logical positivism are Moritz Schlick, the founder, and Rudolf Carnap. Both of them were part of the Vienna Circle. The basic idea of logical positivism is that all knowledge is based on empirical observation, assisted by the rigorous use of logic and mathematics. Some truths, such as formal logic, and mathematics are self-evident to reason, such as 2 plus 2 equals 4, or the rules of algebra. They are true as a matter of definition. All other statements of truth require empirical evidence by which they can be evaluated. The ideal method in science, in other words, is hypothesis testing. In fact, any theoretical statement is meaningful only if it can be tested empirically. And this is called the verification principle. Any statement of truth that was not a matter of definition and was not capable of being confirmed or falsified by evidence was a pseudo-statement. It was neither true nor false. It was simply meaningless nonsense. Now what this meant in the larger scheme was that all statements of metaphysics, mysticism, intuition, and of course theology, were hollow and meaningless. And, moreover, they were useless to science, because they were unavailable for analysis or evaluation. Over time, logical positivism came to dominate the thinking of most people in physics and chemistry, and many in biology and psychology. In psychology, it was the behaviorists who adopted logical positivism most enthusiastically. Other names associated with logical positivism, whom we have already discussed, are Ernst Mach, Bertrand Russell, and Ludwig Wittgenstein. But in the second half of the 20th century, a new philosophy emerged called postmodernism. Postmodernism offered some powerful criticism of logical positivism and all modern philosophy. The most familiar names associated with postmodernism are Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. The philosophy of postmodernism started not in science or psychology, but in architecture when some young architects in the early 1900s rebelled against what their teachers were telling them about the right and wrong ways to design buildings. 
Their teachers at the time were mostly modernists, who liked clean lines and pure geometric forms, such as we see in many modern skyscrapers. Because they were rebelling against the modernists, the rebels called themselves postmodernists. The modernist influence emphasized keeping with one architectural philosophy or another, one style or another. The postmodernists said, break the rules, mix up the styles, play with space, defy gravity if you like. In philosophy, the term modernism refers to Enlightenment philosophy. The Enlightenment philosophers like Jean Locke, Baruch Spinoza, Descartes, Voltaire, Montesquieu, even Thomas Jefferson, were seeking a single monolithic truth, truth with a capital T. But beginning with Hume's skepticism and continuing with Kant's critical philosophy, philosophers became increasingly aware of the limitations of philosophy. Although often hidden by the popularity of approaches such as Hegel's absolutism and Comte's positivism, this skeptical or critical line of thought continued all the way through the 1800s to Nietzsche's perspectivism and William James's pragmatism. The fundamental point of postmodernism in the sciences is that there is no objective reality or ultimate truth, at least none that we can access directly. Truth is a matter of perspective or point of view. The truth that you claim, even scientific claims, reflects your view of reality and may or may not be true for me. Each individual constructs his or her own understanding of reality and no one is capable of rising above their own perspective. Postmodernism holds that, in the course of history, some constructions of reality have been privileged, that is, supported by a powerful elite, wealthy white European males, to use a common example. While the constructions of reality of the elite were privileged, other constructions of reality have been suppressed. Examples of these suppressed constructions include the points of view of women, the poor, or of non-Western cultures. The privileged views of the elite became the dominant cultural standard. Classical music, therefore, owing to its origins in Western Europe, was represented as qualitatively better than tribal music or even the European popular music of the lower classes. Sports such as polo, fencing, and yachting were of a higher standing than football, soccer, basketball, or beer pong. The pursuit of opera, literature, and rhetoric was inherently superior to reality television, escapist fiction, and talk radio. High culture and fine art was thought to be better and more refined than low culture, pop music, or folk art. In the postmodernist view, cultures and expressions of culture may differ, but each one must be understood from its own perspective and should not, therefore, be compared favorably or unfavorably to others. The Enlightenment ideal had always been to make higher learning available to the masses. The postmodernist critique 
was that mass society, kitsch, primitive art, graffiti, and what the elite would disparagingly call bread and circuses, were just different, but in no way inferior to the preferences of the elites. There was, the postmodernists would argue, no objective way of judging one form of music, art, or culture as inherently better than another. The issue of perspective is key to postmodernism. Everything is seen through lenses or filters. Social, cultural, even individual lenses give individual views of the world around us. Even science has lenses through which it views the world. Thomas Kuhn, a philosopher of science, pointed out that science is hardly a monolith of disinterested scientists objectively and impartially pursuing truth without any trace of bias. Kuhn said that science is actually a messy business full of personal, cultural, sometimes even political influences. Truth, with a capital T, is whatever the scientists presently in power say that it is, until this status quo is overwhelmed by contradictions. Then there will be a scientific revolution. A paradigm shift takes place, and things start all over again. The major tool of postmodernism is deconstruction. Deconstruction is when you show that some system of thought is ultimately incomplete or irrational even by its own internal ideas and reasoning. It is like an extended version of the reduction to absurdity. It is a criticism from the inside out. You can think of deconstruction as an extension of nominalism, where names refer to individuals, but words that pretend to refer to anything more, universals, ideals, forms, natural laws, ultimate truth, those words are just empty noises. By deconstructing some of our traditional philosophies, histories, literatures, and sciences, postmodernism made us aware of the biases we could not easily see because those biases were too close to us, too much a part of us. Another postmodernist movement is multiculturalism. Postmodernists argue that Western thinkers are unconsciously biased by their common cultural assumptions, their social structures, their histories. For many years, for example, there has been a tendency to see Europeans and their descendants as somehow normal or the standard with which we begin, and other people and civilizations are different in comparison to the European norm. Historically, some have viewed those other civilizations in a way as being inferior or deviant, simply because they did not match the European standard. Now, this perspective is sometimes called ethnocentrism, the view that one's own culture is the standard by which all others should be judged. We could make the argument that the view from the lower rungs of society is actually better 
more real, if you will, than those from the top. This has been the claim from organizations such as the Occupy movement. This movement, which gained prominence in America as Occupy Wall Street, spread across the United States, and it emphasizes the differences between the views of the elite, powerful, and wealthy 1% against the rest of America that they call the 99%. The 1% is exemplified by Wall Street bankers, hedge fund managers, or the former Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney, who infamously described the 47% of America whom he said would not vote for him as takers who were interested only in what the government would hand out to them. The 99%, in contrast, is real America, who comprise the workers whose labor makes it possible for the 1% to acquire their wealth. Thus, the experiences of the 99% may be described as being more authentic in its account of the real American experience, more so certainly than the tales of the captains of industry, political bosses, and robber barons, whose experiences are seen as not representative of mainstream American reality. They are seen as being out of touch. This deconstructive task, for another example, has been a predominant emphasis within feminist critique. Feminism began as a call to take women seriously. After eons of women's lives being seen as little more than a footnote to men's, it was way past time to pay attention to women, both as subjects of serious interest and as thinkers in their own right. Feminist critics said that being male unconsciously biases men as philosophers or historians or psychologists or scientists. And if we want to improve our understanding of the world, we need to take the female perspective into account. By the late 1960s in America, the call to acknowledge and appreciate the diverse experiences of the formerly marginalized individuals began to be expressed in the phrase, the personal is political. The phrase meant that raising awareness about the experiences of a group was a form of political action. For feminists, this meant that consciousness-raising groups discussing women's perspectives on relationships, marriage, or childbearing were political in themselves, and that political events such as the war in Vietnam, space program, nuclear power, the Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy assassinations, the Cold War, and Andy Warhol's art could be properly evaluated through the lens of how they affected members of this particular group. This deference to group membership in political debate was discussed by author and orator Christopher Hitchens, speaking at the Hay Festival about the sea changes of the year 1968. Hitchens noted that it was around this time that he began hearing the phrase that the personal is political. He remarked that he had been accustomed to hearing speakers establish their credibility to speak based upon their contributions to or participation in a revolutionary movement or their sacrifices in service of cultural change. But in 1968, 
Hitchens began hearing speakers who asserted that the fact of their gender, amorous preferences, or epidermal pigmentation entitled them to a hearing as well. It became acceptable, Hitchens said, for one to assert credibility simply by beginning a statement, quote, speaking as a... So how should we evaluate the claims of the postmodernist? Can we evaluate the claims of the postmodernists? Should those claims be understood through the lived experiences of the postmodernists themselves? Or should we evaluate those claims based on reason and empiricism? I suppose the answer depends upon whether we begin from a logical positivist or from a postmodernist perspective. Deconstructionism and postmodernist philosophies in general, tend to be negative philosophies. They criticize, but seldom offer alternatives. Their arguments often lack empirical support or even rational thinking. Remember that they are criticizing our very ability to be empirical or rational. However, with the introduction of postmodernism and deconstructionism, Traditionalists and positivists became quite interested in recognizing their own limitations. Because of postmodernist critiques, scientists were pushed to think about the implications that, until very recently, the majority of scientists and other scholars had been members of the upper classes with little sympathy for, much less understanding of, the working class poor. Even today, we have to ask ourselves, who do we as scientists work for? More often than not, it is for establishments, either academic or corporate. We do, unconsciously or not, what our lords demand of us. Postmodernist critique began to change the social scientists. Men as well as women became feminists. Westerners as well as others embraced multiculturalism. Most welcomed the variety of perspectives. Today, most social scientists are well aware of other cultural perspectives and are careful to examine their own biases. Social science generally has welcomed the contributions of a constantly expanding number of scientists from non-Western backgrounds. But eventually, some noticed if all truth is relative, just as if all morality is relative, then feminism, multiculturalism, etc. are not intrinsically more true or more valuable than masculinism or Eurocentrism or so on. If we can't make judgments as to what is and isn't capital T true, then how can we make progress? How can we improve ourselves and our societies if any measure of progress is all in the eyes of the beholder? For example, some feminists have argued that the female perspective is intrinsically better than the male perspective. But this point of view ignores the possibility that men may overcome their biases and the possibility that women can be equally biased. And just because a theory is clearly European 
or owes its origin to a dwem, a dead white European male, does not mean that the theory is necessarily wrong, or that a theory that originates in a non-Western culture is necessarily right. This postmodernist critical knife, it would seem, does cut both ways. Furthermore, the logical positivist might well argue that not all perspectives are equally valuable. For instance, astrology and phrenology are both perspectives on human personality. But from a scientific perspective, they both lack the reliability and usefulness of validated theory-based personality profiles, such as the MMPI or the Big Five personality traits. The explanations for human behavior given by Siberian shamans or tribal elders, although certainly interesting and worthy of study, are not any more likely to be accurate or replicable than the explanations provided by Europe's metaphysicians or alchemists. And, the logical positivist would add, neither are all attempts at culture equally respectable. Cultures that endorse or allow chattel slavery, female genital mutilation, human or animal sacrifice, or so-called honor killings, are qualitatively worse than cultures that outlaw those practices. And abolishing or abandoning practices such as torture, sex trafficking, stoning, or dogfighting is a qualitative good and a sign of real progress. But what about religious beliefs, someone might ask? Science has no standing to argue the validity of religious beliefs. And besides, America has a tradition of religious tolerance and separation of church and state. If someone has a strongly held religious belief about a public policy or how to practice their religion, who are we to judge that? The logical positivist might reply that, while science cannot empirically test religious claims, such as whether believers should be baptized as infants or as adults, we certainly can make judgments about the claims of religion. And some religions make rather large claims for themselves. Many religions claim that their religion alone offers the only path to escape eternal damnation in the afterlife. You don't need to be a scientist to conclude that multiple claims of our religion is the only right religion cannot possibly all be correct. So what is the empirical evidence for a claim that a particular religion is true? There are many religious people who are so convinced of the transcendence of their belief system that they also believe that other people including those who do not subscribe to that belief system, should still be bound by those beliefs and standards and religious laws. In that case, the logical positivist would respond, no one should be expected to respect or accept a belief simply because that belief is labeled religious or cultural. Those claims should be, they, they must be, 
critically and empirically examined and never accepted as true merely because they are accompanied by claims of supernatural origin. In response to a postmodernist claim that others should be expected to accept a claim that a particular behavior is against my religion, the logical positivist would say that while you are free to adopt any belief that you choose and apply it to yourself, when you go to the next step and expect others to adopt your belief or respect your belief, then you are required to provide proof and evidence. And that evidence can be examined critically. There is no culture or religion or belief system that is exempt from criticism, including the practice of science and psychology. The logical positivist would say that there are no claims, religious, cultural, or otherwise, that are immune from critique or ridicule or even parody simply because someone attaches a label such as this is my religion or this is my culture. That does not mean that a particular belief is wrong simply because it is religious or cultural or scientific. It means that nobody gets a free pass. Everybody has to provide evidence. But, the postmodernist argues, how can you judge opinions? People are free to hold whatever opinions they want, and people form their opinions based on their experiences. Experiences, I might add, that are not your own. Who knows that if you had lived life in their shoes, you would hold the same opinions that they do. To which... The logical positivist replies that, regardless of where those ideas and opinions formed, the resultant behavior motivated by those ideas and opinions leads to outcomes that are better or worse. Some beliefs make life better for you and those around you. Other beliefs make you an unhappy, paranoid, angry person that others wish to avoid. Ideas and opinions grounded in evidence and verifiable fact, opinions and ideas supported by reason and empirical observation are inherently better, i.e. more useful and lead to better outcomes than ideas formed through speculation and anecdotal experience or opinions based on superstition or so-called revealed truth. And, we could argue, Excusing bad behavior or bad beliefs because they are grounded in a culture and therefore immune to criticism only promotes the continuance of those bad behaviors and beliefs. But, you might wonder, isn't this just a little too judgmental? Shouldn't we all just live and let live? Let people believe what they want to believe and Let's not try to force logical, positivistic standards on those who want to be postmodern. So here is the final argument that the positivist would make. Beliefs matter. If you believe that all perspectives are equally valid, if you accept that all cultures are equally valuable 
and all religions should be equally respected, then the only thing that raises one perspective over any other, as Nietzsche pointed out, is power. If philosophy and science are reduced to power struggles among authorities, then we are right back where we were, say, on February 17, 1600, when the church burned Giordano Bruno at the stake. So then, what can we conclude from this logical positivist versus postmodern debate? Well, for one, postmodernism makes us aware of our limitations and biases, including the limitations of empiricism and rationalism themselves. Postmodernism makes the logical positivist position a little more humble and keeps it in check when it threatens to speak beyond the evidence. However, postmodernism offers little or nothing as an alternative to the scientific method. In the end, we must nevertheless return to empiricism and rationalism as the only way that we can at least approximate truth. Perhaps the only way that we can survive as a species. So, we take our intellectual tools from the logical positivists, and we learn our lessons about our limitations from the postmodernists, and then we get back to work. <laughs>